This week on Developer Voices, we're talking with James Q. Quick. He's a software developer for FedEx, turned developer advocate for Microsoft, turned online teacher for himself. He teaches JavaScript. He's got a YouTube channel. He does boot camps. He does all kinds of teaching for newer programmers, including teaching them why they might want to get into this industry in the first place. And I think he's got three things to teach us. Firstly, there's that beginner's mindset. If you're just getting started in programming, what do you need to know? What does James think your long-term indicators of success are? What's the mindset you need? Second, if you're more experienced, you still need to understand that mindset. You're going to be working with junior developers during your career, and you're going to forget what you had to learn in the early days. You're going to forget how much you needed to know to get started. And to help them, we need to understand that mindset, to do a good job of mentoring people. And thirdly, as James is a JavaScript teacher, and JavaScript is about the fastest moving target in the industry, we talk about his top libraries we should be taking a look at, what's new and emerging and interesting, and what does he think of the whole JavaScript versus TypeScript decision? So, this week, let's take a look at the opening of the programming career funnel. I'm your host, Chris Jenkins. This is Developer Voices, and today's voice is James Q. Quick. Joining me today, it's James Quick. James, how are you? Hey, doing good. Thank you for having me. I'm very glad to have you. In between um, shifts, being a new father, <laughs> yeah, we talked about this. I've got baby uh, new or newborn, about one and a half months uh, in the room with me. So hopefully, she stays quiet. <laughs> it's very kind of you to join us when your time <laughs> is at a premium. <laughs> so you, um, you and I actually have something in common. I think, which is all the good username handles on the internet <laughs> have already been taken by an American football player. Nice. Yeah, that was a that was like a branding struggle for me. So James Quick is first and last name. And then my handle on everything is James Q Quick. And exactly like you said, there was a football player in the United States, football being American football. And yep. uh, his name is James Quick, went to the NFL the, to play professional football. So his SEO, like he just dominated James Quick from an SEO perspective. And yeah. my middle name is Quentin, a little fun fact. People usually ask me like what that stands for. Um, so anyway, I decided to embrace the middle initial. And now everything brand-wise, like across any platform and personal website, is always uh, James Q. Quick to make sure that I am unique enough to be found <laughs> yeah. on the internet. Yeah, I'm Chris A. Jenkins for exactly the same reason, mm -hmm. apparently. There's a Carolina Panthers, Panthers. linebacker. Okay. Yeah. I'm not even sure what that means, but he's Chris Jenkins <laughs> and he looks nothing like me. It's like 240 yeah. pounds or something. Right. Yeah, it's funny the things we we have to think about when when you look at like branding. And I've I've talked a lot about branding and the impact that like my personal brand has had on my career and and the fact that your personal brand, or at least my personal brand, is basically the most valuable asset that I own. And it wouldn't be that if it wasn't unique enough to be be able to stand out on its own. So embracing that middle initial has definitely definitely been a necessary step along the way. Yeah, yeah, and it's nice that like computer science. It's not just a computer science idea having unique IDs mm -hmm. for objects, yeah. right? It works. It works for us and the us millennials and generations going forward on social. Yeah, absolutely. So I've got you in to talk about this whole journey into programming because you've been helping a lot of people take their yeah. first steps into programming, right? Yeah, I. It's funny. Like there was never a time in in my life until kind of starting my career, which I'm sure we'll talk about, that I, I ever thought I would want to be a teacher. And mm. I've realized that's that's kind of the the thing I enjoy most about all the things that I've done over the course of my career. So I've worked as a, a technical evangelist at Microsoft, more recently, a more familiar title with people, maybe a, a developer advocate, basically working in the community, teach people about the product, teach people how to build things, just kind of be a genuine member of community and engage with them and earn trust and and that sort of stuff. And that can be you know, I speak at events, I do workshops, I do trainings, I do individual consultancy and like one-on-ones. So there's a lot of different interactions that I've had kind of through that professional route. And then I've also been super active in community stuff here in Memphis when I was in New York City as well, just kind of being there at meetups, seeing what people are talking about and, and kind of showing up where developers are. And then lastly, I've taught uh, two rounds of a boot camp called Launch Code, and they are based in 
St. Louis in the U.S. and they do different. Uh, they go to different cities to kind of run their boot camps based on uh, c- typically like city or state funding. And so we did okay. one here in Memphis where I live, and then we did one during COVID virtually for um, basically like Fayetteville, Arkansas, which is a few hours away. And anyway, I d- again, I didn't, I had no thought of like wanting to be a teacher ever in my <laughs> life or career until I started doing the things that are teaching. And it's not, it's not like spending eight hours a day in a classroom. Like you typically think like you can teach people in a lot of different ways. Even being active on social media is a great way to teach people because you can share your knowledge and insights and things you've learned with people all across the world. And that's kind of what content has done for me. And then the ability to like have deeper uh, teaching interactions through teaching boot camps as well. What's it like teaching a boot camp? Because it must be a very different audience to the usual developer audience that we're used to chatting with casually. Yeah, right? yeah there's you get kind of a different um, different set of backgrounds for people. Obviously, like some people have had a little bit of interest in programming before. Some people maybe took a class in college ten years ago when they were in school. But the majority of the people that I taught were starting from absolute scratch. They had done no programming, didn't really know what it was. And they just kind of hear about like a lot of people do kind of the promise of opportunity in tech, right? Like this is this is one of the industries that more and more so does not require a college degree. You can go you can learn on your own, although that's certainly a difficult thing to do. But all the resources are there if you're able to find them. But going through a boot camp, it's so impactful because in six months to a year, people can completely change the trajectory of their career, right? They're completely switching careers. So not only making the switch, but also looking at what does that mean for them long-term or long-term? That means they have much higher potential salary, much higher potential benefits than industries that they had been in in the past. So the impact of that is is huge, but it's it's kind of fun. It's, It's definitely a challenge to start with people that literally have done nothing before. And I think it's kind of a good reminder for us that have been developing for 10 years or however long we've been writing code, it's a good reminder for us what that perspective is when you don't, when you have no idea what a string is, when you have no idea what a for loop is and what these random characters mean in terms of code. So it's kind of, kind of a good refresher to get back in touch with what it's like to be starting from scratch. Yeah, that would absolutely scare me because I'm yeah. <laughs> not sure I could go that far back to and explain what a string is. Mm-hmm. The string has been part of my lexicon for decades. Yeah. Right. It is. Yeah, it's really tough. It, it also is really cool, too, though, because you'll hear as as it as it clicks with certain students, they'll express that understanding in a way that you've never thought about before. So like the way that you and I know strings now, the way that you and I think we remember learning strings and kind of having that <laughs> aha moment, they could they could still have that moment in a completely different way, in a completely different understanding. And that just goes to like people think about things differently. They understand differently. They learn differently. So it does give you a bunch of different perspectives from, in this case, like these boot camps start with 160 people. And at the end, it, you graduate like 50 or 60. Like it's kind of a get a bunch of people in and, and bring as many people to the finish line as we possibly can. But that's that many different perspectives that you have at every given stage. And to see them like build confidence along the way, like as they start to understand some things, there's still a lot of imposter syndrome. That's what we talk about a lot. But you see mm-hmm. like, the confidence start to build like as they get something and and they can build on that, right? Like they're building that foundation that then makes it easier to learn more and more. It's really just, it's a fun process, a really, really fun process. Probably two, those two courses being like two of the most impactful things that I, I feel like I've been able to do in my career. That's incredible. Do you think you'll be doing more going forward? I don't know. It's it's a challenge. So uh, the 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 one that I did was uh, launch code. It's a it's completely free. So it's based on funding. So they don't have to pay anything, and it's part time, and it's not during the day. So the huge benefit of this, the reason it's so can be so impactful, I think, is because people don't have to quit their full time jobs. And if you look at like, yeah. I've never since college, I've never been in a position where I couldn't be working full time. And through high school and college, I was never in a position where I couldn't be working at least part-time because I like no one's just giving me money to live off of. So (laughs) that's the really unique experience with launch code is they can keep their full-time job. It's not five days a week. It's two nights a week, three hours at a time. And then obviously they expected to put a lot of time into homework when you can. Yeah. But it was just really, really wild to see people juggle full-time job, multiple kids, et cetera. So again, super special opportunity. It is a challenge for me at the time, like working full-time and then me going, and doing those extra hours at night and then the preparation and then 
doing like meetups on a Sunday to do like office hours and things. It was certainly a challenge. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a ton of other things that are kind of on my plate from a content perspective. And, and we haven't quite touched this, but I do content creation full time in the web development JavaScript ecosystem uh, space. So I've got tons of different things that I want to do. I think like a lot of people and figuring out like what is the absolute highest priority is is a challenge. Um, but I will say regardless of formally teaching in a boot camp, again, certainly an opportunity. But one of the things I do want to build up more is just my personal course content that I can get in the hands of developers. And again, there's a level of scale there of like a virtual thing at their own pace. You can, you can impact as many people as sign up for the course and potentially have interactions with them and forums and discord and that sort of stuff so anyway yeah uh, long story short it's definitely an option it's a time commitment there's lots of things that i would like to do figuring out and prioritizing all of those especially now with newborn is, yeah, uh, yeah it's kind of an ever everlasting challenge i think for the next uh many many years yeah and when you're freelance it's like here's a blank piece of paper define your career and choose it, what to yeah. add and subtract right yeah i've even i've had a little bit um not an awakening I, that sounds really cliche but I, i've been really starting to think about what are those priorities a little bit more the last uh, last month or so? Mm-hmm. Anyway, it'll be it'll be exciting to see what the next few years uh, pans out, how it pans out for me. Do you think you're going to end up more talking to existing developers or like aiming towards new people coming into development? Yeah, I think I, I've got kind of like a few different categories of things that I I, I talk about and teach and, and preach honestly to people, <laughs> and there's. There's like the breaking into tech conversation. So it's like, what are the things that you could be doing? How do you prioritize your time? Going back to like, if you're looking to get into a programming job, there's a million things you could learn. How do you prioritize? Like, here are the things that are going to give me the best leg up to get that first job and a successful career in tech. So that is certainly a huge part of my target audience. I definitely think there's kind of like the intermediate content level for me as well. But the interesting thing for me is I don't write code full time now. And I've actually only done that for a relatively small portion of my career because I've been in this technical evangelist and developer advocate role for the majority of it, which is a mix of having the technical expertise, but also focusing on the public speaking, the working with people, the relationships, the community building. Yeah. So I'm not like I, I think I'm a very competent developer. I think I'm <laughs> I'm pretty good at what I do, but I also just don't have the experience that people that have been writing code every single day, production level software have for the last 10 years, right? So I've got a different level or a different set of experiences. So I don't think, I don't think I see myself doing very much of like the advanced content just because I, I rarely ever dive deep enough to do that. But certainly a lot of time goes into breaking into tech from a technical perspective and a career perspective and like marketing yourself and all these things. Yeah. There's definitely a good amount of content that I think goes towards the like intermediate developer and and the advantage that I have of not doing software every day for one project, for example, is I get to try out a lot of different tools and platforms and frameworks, which in the yeah. JavaScript ecosystem changes every day. So I do have this <laughs> yeah. perspective of here's kind of what the industry is doing, even if I'm not diving down into the advanced level. Yeah, and you end up going one, broad rather than deep. Yeah, it, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's fun because I get to experiment with a lot of a lot of different things that most people don't have uh, most most people don't have the time to do. I really want to ask you what's on there, your JavaScript radar. But before I do that, <laughs> I just want to stay on this topic of people getting started. You said like, you get yeah. 160 people whittled down to 50. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, is there a pattern to the backgrounds, to the mindset, to what's going on in their life? Can you yeah. predict who the 50 are going to be? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So one thing I will clarify just a little bit is the like the idea of whittling down. So it's not us like whittling down. It's just, again, because it's free, because it's a time commitment on top of most people working full time. It's just one of the hardest things people will ever do. It's a significant challenge from most adults. I think we're just we're not used to starting from scratch. We're not used to being at the bottom of the totem pole. It's like when you go from in, in the US, like eighth grade is the end of middle school and you go into high school you were at the top of the school in middle school and now you're going <laughs> yeah. to the bottom in high school. But as adults, we're just not used to, to doing that. And so the, I think a lot of the conversations that, that are really important that I, I try to stress is to make people feel uncomfortable to know this is common. This is expected. This is one of the hardest things you'll probably ever do in your life. It's challenging for everyone. Everyone is going through it. Everyone is struggling, even if and when you feel like it's only you. 
So I, I will say like you kind of looked at or you asked about indicators for people. And this is part of my job as an instructor. And I think just community in general is to help put people in position to feel comfortable to do this. But the people who ask questions is a significant indicator because what happens is you get in the snowball of you have imposter syndrome. Again, we can talk about it. I can try to address that and say it's common, blah, 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 as much as I can. But you get in the snowball. And, and this was me in college where I wouldn't ask the question first. And then a month later, you feel like you're way too behind to be asking that question from a month ago. But the thing you're learning now is built on top of something you should have learned a month ago. Yeah. So the ability to ask questions is is always a significant indicator from my perspective of uh, success for people going through that journey. Yeah, yeah. I have a friend um, and an ex-colleague who's great at that, even like late on in his programming career. He mm -hmm. is the first person to raise his hand, ask yeah. a question, and risk looking ignorant. Yep. And um, that's, <laughs> it, it's kind of one career hack for me that anytime I'm in a position to ask a question, and I'll give it specific examples in, in a minute, I, I will find a question, a relevant question to ask so that there is the perspective of I have a question, I'm scared to ask, but I force myself to do it because I know I need to. There's also this additional perspective of let's say we have like an offsite for a team of 60 people or 100 people and you're in person and maybe you're not in the in the same room with those people on a very regular basis. Maybe you're working remotely like a lot of us do now. So you never get to see these people in person the more visibility you can get for yourself for your career and you don't have to be really selfish about this you don't have to like do a dance or anything just like participate in the question or participate by asking questions so if they have an open question for vps and directors people that don't know much about you forcing yourself to have something relevant to stand up and just be a face that they recognize i think is a little bit of a career hack for me for mm -hmm. from a visibility standpoint so far from uh, a question making you look stupid, you think it actually makes you look, makes you visible enough to be, you know, it's a positive thing to risk looking stupid. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the, the reality is most of us, most of us are much more self-conscious about what we say than the likelihood of other people judging us, right? Like we are almost yeah. always our worst critics. We almost are always hype up and overhype the fears because that's, unfortunately kind of human nature for us so putting it out there i think to your point yes you're, you're almost certainly not going to look like you don't know what's going on it's i think more likely that it's just going to raise some visibility to you as an employee in front of an audience of people that like maybe making hiring decisions for next roles or promotion decisions later on and so that was a big thing when I went from a developer, a technical evangelist at Microsoft, where I had all this public speaking experience, and I kind of found my voice, I kind of I was confident having that voice. Yeah. And I went to a traditional engineering role at FedEx. That was my hack in my career where I spoke up all the time. And when developers would like, they would grumble about things that they didn't feel was right, like timelines, or like this person, leadership doesn't understand what's really going on, that would be my opportunity to go and speak up. And having that voice, got visibility and I think earned respect for myself to, And this has never happened other than me that I know of, although I'm sure it has, but I ended up getting a skip level promotion from a software developer role to an architect role. That was a mix of software development, but also then being able to communicate technical concepts to technical and non-technical people. And so me walking in with that voice and being comfortable with it, I think was a big part of uh, that working out for me. Yeah, I can totally see that because there's always this thing in companies where there's a missing bridge between the technology mm -hmm. and the people that don't understand technology. Yep, and I, absolutely. I guess it's related to the boot camp thing, right? Is that can you communicate in a way that crosses that mm -hmm. divide? Yep. So do you think that that questioning thing is I mean, I, I can imagine a lot of people wanting like considering a tech career. And thinking, oh, I don't have a, I don't have a logical mind, or I don't have a background in, I didn't like math or maths mm -hmm. at school or something. <laughs> but the ability to ask questions, do you think that's the the real key? I think in terms of, I think so. If you're going through a boot camp, if if you're looking to go into a boot camp, I would do some free resources online, YouTube, free code camp, etc., to see if it's something that's the least bit interested, interesting for you. Like if mm. you kind of go through some very basic tutorials, you're like, okay, I can kind of see that. And then looking at investing more time and energy and potentially money, 
I think after you kind of have some of that interest, ideally, then that ability to ask questions is a significant indicator. And and the reality is like tech is a is a very broad word. I think I overgeneralize this a lot where I say tech and a lot of people do and they mean programming jobs. Mm. But there are there are lots of roles that are not just programming that I think the visibility for that could really help people as they're going through this too. Because if you go through a boot camp and you're like, okay, I kind of enjoy this. I enjoy aspects of this, but I, I can't see myself working in a basement 40 hours a week writing code, which is the stereotype, right? Like that's what we yeah. like stereotype <laughs> developers as. But if you look at where I am in my career and actually where I started my career, it was this really amazing mix of there is the technical side, there is the understanding of code, there's the writing of code for demos and certain things, but also I get to be with people. I get to speak, I get to create content, I get to do video, I get to do podcasts, I get to travel, I get yeah. to do all these things that you don't typically think about with a traditional software developer role. And that's just one other aspect. There's business analysts, which approach it more from a business perspective, but understanding the programming makes you better at your job. There's tons of people that come from design backgrounds that can do specifically UI UX or specifically front end. Like you can find ways to use those skills to open up lots of different opportunities and kind of pick which one of those makes more sense for you. It's more than just writing code 40 hours a week like we think (laughs) is all that's available. Yeah. So coming from the other side of it where I've been like programming as a kid forever, Right. Mm. I, there's never been a time when I've not been a programmer. Yeah. I sometimes worry, I'm going to challenge you with this and see what you think, uh, that people coming out of boot camps just are left, okay, you've built one or two websites, and now you're left on your own. You're probably not going to have the experiences that give you the depth and the roots yeah. you're going to need. Even if you're not a full-time programmer, you're just not going to build the depth of knowledge it takes to be a designer that codes or a mm-hmm. communicator of code. Yeah, is any uh, way through that? Well, I can I can kind of start by countering from from my experience, and so the the alternative to that I think is going through the traditional computer science degree. Like you you have an additional advantage of you said you've been programming since how, ten years old or however long it was for you. I don't know. Yeah, but there's typically you're comparing the traditional computer science degree with people that don't do the traditional. They self teach or they go through boot camp. And so for for me. I went, I went to a top university in, in the country. I went to a top 20 university in the country, an amazing school. I went through the computer science program. So I, I had computer science every day for four years. And when I graduated and had interviews, I realized I really struggled to be able to answer like pretty basic questions about object-oriented programming and other things. And the reason was I treated that like school. I treated it like grades. So I got really good grades. I, I got mostly A's in computer science. I did really well from a grades perspective, but I didn't appreciate what I was doing. I didn't really learn the content. I didn't really learn how everything fit together. Yeah. So I think, first off, you're comparing, you're potentially comparing like bootcamp grads with computer science grads. And there's definitely advantages, I think, of both. I'll come back to that in a second. But it's not, it's not just a, it's not just a comparison of which path did you take. It's down to the individual, right? Like there mm. are people who graduate boot camps who learn the bootcamp content but also just from excitement and involvement in the community and doing extra resources, they're learning much more than I learned in my computer science degree, right? So it's like some, a lot of that is down to the individual. It's challenging to not have that degree to then be able to communicate all the things that you know or to get visibility for interviews and things because you don't have a university, for example, on your resume. But the, the other aspect of this is that that journey like never ends. So in in a boot camp, I think you're learning much more practical content or or programming content than I learned in college. So the advantage that I have is I did data structures and algorithms. I did a um I don't know, like I didn't take a databases class, but I did like those core fundamentals of here's how programming works and the actual science behind computer science you don't really do much of that in boot camp but what you do do is you learn how to build websites you learn to use source control you learn to deploy websites you learn about full stack applications none of which i learned in my degree yeah yeah. so these are these are two different sets and i I look at it from this perspective of either way you go your learning journey is never going to end as i took my first developer role i was i was good enough to get the role but the amount that i learned in six months of being on the job is exponential and it's the same thing for people who go through boot camps right like if you were 
if you're not only doing it full time, but you're also paid to do it full time and you're surrounded by a team, ideally, that is there to support you and teach you and and kind of train you where you are six months into that role, you're a completely different person. You're on a completely different trajectory. So I, I think it comes down to the individual and what they've invested into whichever path they've taken. And I think from a company perspective, you have to look at like, here's where they start, but what's their potential? You can't just write someone off because they don't have the experience yet in certain yeah. things. Maybe you can, but be open-minded to the fact that like, look at what they've done in the time they've had and the exposure that they had. Imagine what they'll be able to do in six months as they see what real world software looks like on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially if you're like hiring junior developers, which is mm-hmm. probably what you're doing for bootcamp people. Yep. Just seeing the potential and expecting to train them. Right. Absolutely. And that's it's a it's a big responsibility too on from the hiring company perspective. You have to be you have to have in place mechanisms to support junior developers. And there are lots of companies that aren't very good of that at that. That was a particular interest for me when I was at FedEx was I love teaching. Again, going back to like the background that I had had. So I when someone would join, I love to do onboarding and whiteboarding sessions with them and explain what was going on. Not all companies have that. And so they have to be intentional to support junior developers or you're going to be in this position where junior developers stay a year and they leave because it's a terrible environment and they're not really <laughs> learning what they should be. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah. Especially in the early days, you have to be looking at what you can give to them as well as what you can get out of them. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So one thing I often wonder, right, is I think there's something very noble about getting into programming to pay the bills, right? There is absolutely no shame in putting food on the table. And if you can find a better career, go for it. How do we, as the people in the career and as educators, say, look, this is great. Not only can you earn a decent living, but look at all these fun things you can do with this power. How do we bring them across from it just being about money to realizing what they've actually got? Well, I've I've got a slightly different perspective than a lot of people have, because in... uh, most people say, I think exactly what you said, like if you get into tech and programming just for the money, that's great. And I, I do think that as well. But I also have the perspective for me of work-life balance and happiness is number one priority for me. Now, I do have an advantage of being in tech. I can still have these other things like vacation and and money and all these things and be picky about what my work-life balance and enjoyment is. Hmm. But I do encourage people to at least consider that. Like I think that I think that should be a part of the the thought process going into um, into tech is that your happiness is still very important as well. Ideally, you combine both of those, right? And that's why I like to talk a lot about, and maybe going back to answer your question of being in tech, being in programming is not necessarily just writing code 40 hours a week. I think showing people what different types of roles are, what different types of day-to-day obligations are and engagements are, and showing them that, again, it's more than just what you've been doing in your bootcamp, or at least it can be, I think that helps open up people to different perspectives on what their potential, what a job looks like. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I can see that. It's Because one, one of the great things about programming is it can take you in so many different directions, mm-hmm. right? And, Absolutely. And nearly all kinds of companies need programmers. So you can be in all yep. kinds of sectors as well. Yep. And I think... Like being in, I call it again, like generally being in tech, I'll share a, a quick story about my wife. So she had had been in hospitality for all of her career since we graduated. Her mom has been in hospitality for 20 years. And that's what my wife grew up seeing. Like she would go and, and work with her mom doing something at the hotel that she worked at. Mm-hmm. So that's what she was used to. She was always very successful in terms of like, she was very good at her job. People had a lot of respect for what she did. They would come to her with questions. They would, I don't know, they would respect her a lot, but it was in the hospitality industry, which can be very limited in terms of money, in terms of vacation, in terms of honestly appreciation from a benefits perspective. And so yeah. it um, it ended up that there was an opportunity at the company I was working at at the time, All Zero, for an event, uh, basically an event plan, events and sponsorships coordinator position right. on the team that I was on. And so she interviewed, it worked out. And overnight, my wife tripled her salary, went from two weeks vacation to unlimited vacation, went from no stock options and that never even being a possibility to stock options and employee stock purchase program and all these things. And and that's what I like to share with people is you can probably find a way 
even if it's not writing code 40 hours a week, you can find a way if you do research and, and kind of stay with it to break into tech and open up all the benefits that we talk about for money and, and general benefits and happiness and travel and all these things. You can find a way, I think. And so I love sharing that journey because it's not just from a programming perspective. It's just breaking into the right opportunity. And I say this a lot too. I think for people in their careers, whatever, whatever you do, whatever your job is, however much money you make, I can guarantee you, if you search hard enough, you could find another opportunity doing a similar job, enjoying it the same, if not more, but also make more money. So like <laughs> I talk about work-life balance and happiness being my number one priority. There's no reason that money being second shouldn't be a significant factor. And those two things can't go hand in hand with each other. Yeah. Wow. I feel like we're getting, uh, we're sliding away from our usual topic of tech into <laughs> motivational speaking. Yeah. <laughs> that is, I didn't mention this earlier. That's kind of the additional, especially from a public speaking perspective, the additional like type of content that I see myself doing more of is more of the motivational stuff. So uh, okay. sorry for going down that rabbit hole. No, th that's <laughs> fine. But I am going to drag you back to tech because I yeah, have absolutely. one. I have another core question for you. Why is it, do you think, that nearly all of these boot camps focus around JavaScript or Python? Is it just yeah. where are the jobs or is there some other reason? Uh, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's just ease of getting started. So when I look at, I started in, in college having no experience and, and kind of chose computer science on a whim, like I didn't know what to study and they asked and I said, computer science, sure. <laughs> and I, I had Java. And so to work with Java, it's an object-oriented programming, which you can't write a line of code without it being inside of a class. So just to just to try to get to the point of what is a string or how to log something out to the console, you can kind of skirt past it, but you're at least exposed to this concept of a class. Yeah. So at, at the start, you're like, you just kind of, okay, that code's there. I have no idea what that code does. And and for me, like I just ignored that for years, going back to not really appreciating what I was doing, like the fact that it was a class, I just completely ignored and and would go to like write a function and, and to do something in that without understanding what classes were. Yeah. So Java, JavaScript, and so not Java, JavaScript and Python are both the ease of getting started is substantial and significant. And I think that's a, a really big factor. The other thing that's particularly useful for me about JavaScript is you can you can use it to do stuff really quickly, like in a browser. So it's, it's much different than just logging something out to a console. That's valuable. But being able to see something potentially move on a web page, combining that with HTML and CSS. Yeah. Wow. Like that's, that's significant. And the last thing I'll add about JavaScript is it can do kind of everything, right? Like you can do your core web development, HTML, CSS, JavaScript. You can do backend with Node.js. There's tons of different frameworks. You can do mobile. You can do IoT. You can do kind of everything with JavaScript. And so I think the ubiquitousness of JavaScript, um, in addition to the ease of getting started and the ability to kind of see see interactions for the or see something happen based on code you write, those are kind of the, yeah. the three big ones that I think about specifically with JavaScript. Python having a lot of the benefits too of just like ease of use and popularity. Yeah, yeah. I'll add one of my own to that list, which is the great thing about JavaScript is you can share it with non-programmers so much more easily. Like mm. you can, I can send my code I can send JavaScript code to my mother just by saying, click on this link. Yeah. And she will run yeah. the code without ever knowing what without running knowing. code means. Yeah. 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 That's and cool. that's, that's a good point because in, in college, to do Java, we had to download Eclipse. And there was actually this one, one homework assignment that I thought was passing just because my editor didn't call out any errors. Mm. Turns out it just it wasn't running at all because of an error that I just didn't see. <laughs> and in Eclipse. So I like submitted this assignment and got a bad grade. And I was like, it literally doesn't like, how would I know that it didn't work? Like it seemed like everything worked because it didn't tell me that it didn't. So there's, there's additional tooling and stuff that goes into uh, setting up something like Java as well. Yeah, yeah. It's, there's a lot of ceremony and overhead to mm -hmm. that language in particular. It's famous. For, oh. I sometimes think if you surgically removed my brain, the remaining spinal cord would be able to say public static void main. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking. Yeah. So this this leads us into the JavaScript world then, because because um, it's it's one of those languages where it's constantly in flux, and it feels like even if you program JavaScript three years ago, you kind of come back to it different. as a newbie yeah. again, right? Yeah. So give me your quick top three 
things in the JavaScript world that excite you at the moment? Yeah, so one is a framework called Astro. And so Astro typically is kind of lumped into the static site generator category. So statically generating sites became very popular in, in something called the Jamstack a few years ago. Jamstack stands for JavaScript APIs and markup. And a lot of its priority was to build web pages statically. And so that means if you have like a blog, for example, instead of the traditional way that it had been and, and the way it worked in the past was you, you visit a, a blog page, it would send a request to the server, the server would go to the database to get to co- the content, it would create the markup, the HTML, and it would send it back to the browser. Yeah. With statically generated content, what happens is your website knows at any given time, here's all the content, right? Like it can go and query all the content when you build it and deploy it. And then go ahead and just generate all of those pages as HTML. So you're not having to go to the server after that. And Astro was kind of thrown into that category, although it can do everything that these other bigger frameworks can do. It can do API endpoints. It can do SSR, which is server-side rendering. It can do all of these things. Mm. And it's really just, it's they've got an amazing team. It's really optimized for certain use cases, specifically for static content for performance it doesn't ship javascript to the browser by default has integrations uh directly or support directly for markdown and mdx for like authoring your content so there's lots of really good things about astro i think it's really neat i think what they've done in the last couple of years is really incredible and i'm actually like i'll do a, a shameless plug i'm working on a course to learn <laughs> astro at astrocourse.dev so that obviously has been one of the things that's been super top of mind for me Okay, and is that course aimed at like boot camp level, post boot camp, regular jobbing developers? Uh, yeah, so the expectations from from my end would be kind of a, a solid foundation in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. You don't necessarily have to have experience with a framework. I think a framework experience would help something like React or Angular, or Vue, or whatever it is. So I think that would help, but not required. And so it is It is a pretty like ground up approach of like some people are going to be learning what a framework does for the first time, but then you'll <laughs> yeah. dive into a lot of the specifics and benefits of Astro itself. Okay. See if you can persuade me quickly. I've been using <laughs> Gatsby for my website, yeah. which is in the same category. Mm-hmm. Is there a good, is there a reason I should consider switching? Yeah, there's, there's actually a couple. So, um, Astro does not ship JavaScript by default. So what happens with Gatsby and Next.js, it, the same, is it's it can do statically generated content, but when it sends that down to the browser, it's also sending JavaScript to do rehydration. And so rehydration is interactive JavaScript on the browser that can do things if you want or need it to, like adding comments or loading additional comments or loading additional features or whatever. Mm. So you still get the benefit of having that like that HTML that comes down but with Gatsby, with other frameworks, typically you're going to have this rehydration JavaScript, which takes up some amount of space and time, right? Like, I, th- I think some of us are really, really picky about that. And, and the reality is, like, JavaScript can be sent to the browser relatively quickly. So in some cases, it's not a huge deal. But by default, Astro does not send JavaScript. In addition to that, if you need the JavaScript, you can do that and you can do it in a very selective way. So you can load JavaScript in specific parts of your application and you can also load it intelligently. So if I have a comment section where I want to load the comments dynamically for a blog post, I can have a component for the comments that's on that page, but I can tell it to not load that JavaScript unless the user actually scrolls down there. Because what happens is a lot of times in websites, we load a lot of JavaScript for portions of our website that never get used. So you can actually intelligently kind of load in this JavaScript using Astro Islands. So this is the ability to determine where you can think of islands on a web page of being interactive JavaScript, and you can determine when and how to pull that JavaScript in if you need it. That's an interesting idea. So Mm -hmm. it's like lazy loading on view-based demand. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And there's there's different ways you can, you can, eagerly load it if you know it's going to be something that people are going to come down to or it's on the the top part of the page or whatever but uh but yeah exactly okay i should have a look at that um, and there's a there's another one i'll throw out at you hmm. um so the way that you're able to do that interactive javascript if you would like is you can use existing libraries or frameworks i won't debate the the verbiage here <laughs> but you can use react components you can use felt components you can use view components you can use 
lit components and a few other ones that are I don't have as much experience with. But for me, the components that I've written that I needed more JavaScript interactivity with, I've used Svelte. I love Svelte. It's it's one of my favorites. And so inside of Astro, you can use kind of your favorite JavaScript library framework and take advantage of the Astro ecosystem while leveraging the existing experience that you have with those other frameworks. Okay, because I think um, Gatsby, which is my point of reference here, it's fairly highly wedded to React. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Why Svelte? Why should I consider that as my front-end framework? Yeah, Svelte is much simpler for a lot of things than React. So if you think about um, doing a, a traditional form in React, you you use useState, and so you have to bring in React hooks to do that. You have to then kind of wire up that state to the to the inputs to define like which input that state is connected to. You then have to have like an update function that says like when this input gets updated, go and then update the piece of state. So there's like a lot of boilerplate code to set up what is basically two-way binding. Uh, you have a piece of data. If the data changes, the UI changes. If the UI changes, the data changes, etc. cetera. Okay. In Svelte, the way you do that is you just define a variable inside of your component and that thing is now interactive. So you can you can set up two-way binding with one directive on an input in Svelte and not have to worry about additional use state or like update functions, et cetera. It just kind of works. And it's people will tell you this, and, and this is a, a big way that I would sell it as well. For using a framework, it's the thing that feels closest to HTML and CSS and JavaScript, like vanilla JavaScript, okay. in comparison to anything else. And that is really pretty beautiful. Are we seeing the pendulum swing back from <laughs> like uh, dynamic bindings across to virtual DOMs? Is it swinging back the other way again? Well, we're, I, things are switching <laughs> very frequently. I, I mentioned kind of the <laughs> idea of, of the Jamstack a few years ago being very popular and it's had a really big focus on static content and that hasn't necessarily gone away but what we realized as an ecosystem when we were doing all the statically generated content is there's still really significant use cases for leveraging the server as well and so we're now in that sense swinging back to the server from a lot of different perspectives we have server-side rendered content for things that are updated more dynamically, or if you think about scaling out a massive blog, you're probably not on every build build going to generate fifty thousand blog post pages, right? Like that just that would take that would make your build so much longer. Yeah. So leveraging the server for that, leveraging the server for authentication, for example, to prevent users from getting to a page if they're not logged in, instead of loading that stuff on the client in client JavaScript, where you have that like loading state every time, so you load an application. And it has to take a second before it knows on the in the browser whether or not you're authenticated to view that page. So you have that loading state. And uh, oh, so going back to your question of potentially talking specifically about forms, I think we're also seeing a resurgence of using the browser for what it is instead of what we changed it to be. And what I mean is browsers by default handle form submissions, right? Like I, I mentioned this idea in React of doing a form submission where what we're doing is tracking all the state inside of React and then making a fetch request to our backend, getting a response and updating the UI. But lots of frameworks now are going back to the idea of doing traditional form submissions to the server. Something like Remix really made this popular. Next.js now, or actually, sorry, at at a higher level, React has React uh, server actions and so Next.js is leveraging that in a beta stage right now to, to have kind of your traditional form submissions like we had and used every day 10 or 15 years ago. <laughs> but now they're, they're doing it in a more modern way to take advantage of a lot of the things that we've learned. So there's definitely like additions and benefits to what we're doing. But it is funny to, to see how we've gone from one side to another and back and forth maybe yeah. several times in what we consider to be best practices as we get better and more opinionated along the way. <laughs> yeah, we definitely get more opinionated. Hopefully yes. we get better. Right? Yeah, yeah that maybe, maybe debatable about the better, but... Okay, give me one more recommendation from the JavaScript world because this is, I think, even more in flux than um, front-end frameworks. What's the build tool we're supposed to be using right now? I've been <laughs> using Yarn for years. Yeah, I, I've never 
been opinionated about this. I've always used NPM just because that's what I started with. And, and I never felt a pain point to go anywhere else. So I use NPM versus Yarn. And then from a build tool perspective, there's there's a lot of things. Like Vite is now the the most popular thing. I think Vite is built on top of VS Build and they leverage maybe Go, but not JavaScript behind the scenes. So a lot of the build tools leading up until the last couple of years in the JavaScript ecosystem were also built in JavaScript. Mm. JavaScript for super performant things is not the most performant of languages that we could use. So Go and Rust are a couple of the big options that people are using to build developer tools to emulate what we already had, but much, much faster, which means your build times are faster, your dev environments run faster, et cetera. And I'll I'll even caveat that a little bit more to the point of because I leverage frameworks that are doing that work for me, I don't care. Like I, Mm. I don't need to know, like I've done research just out of curiosity and having the free time to go and dig more into them. But I don't, I don't really need to know a whole lot about how Vite works or what it does or that I'm using Vite versus anything else as long as it's updated and it's doing like it, it's giving me the obvious benefits that other frameworks are. And frameworks are very competitive. They're iterating on how do we get faster? How do we get better hot module reloading and all these things? So for me, a lot of my perspective is I don't care because it's going to do that stuff for me and it's going to do that stuff way better than if I try to set it, all of it up myself. True, true. But does that not naturally seduce you across to this language that's not JavaScript, but seems to be doing this thing better? It's it's just use case, right? Like Rust, Rust and Go don't have, don't have the popularity of JavaScript. They don't have the usage. So if you look at job opportunities, there's a lot more job opportunities using JavaScript. You can also use JavaScript to do a lot more things. We talked about this earlier. You can do it for front end, for back end, for IoT, for mobile, for desktop applications, et cetera. Mm. You can't do that with Go and Rust. And I, I won't overspeak on what they can do because I'm not intimately familiar with them. But everything that um, that I'm familiar with is kind of either back end code and or code that can run on your machine like a build process, for example, like we kind of talked about. And so I think those are it's augments right like it changes it changes what the ecosystem looks like because the tooling is better but it doesn't change my need and or desire and enjoyment of writing javascript for the stuff that i do just the surrounding ecosystem gets better because those languages enable better performance that's fair in that case i have to ask you one (laughs) last question (laughs) which is um what about typescript then what's your take on typescript a huge fan, um, huge fan of TypeScript. It's a, it's actually really funny. I had never written any JavaScript until about 2016. I never really done anything web related until 2016. And so my experience up until that point was C sharp and Java. So we talked about that a little bit earlier. Very strongly typed languages, object oriented languages. That was how I was used to writing code. And I started to break into JavaScript. And it terrified me because you could, especially at the time, you could do whatever you wanted and the tooling wasn't there to, at the time to tell you not to. You yeah. could just do it and then the browser would, like it would work or it wouldn't and you would find that out relatively quickly, but not as quickly as if the like IDE told you. Yeah. And so I remember using Sublime and Notepad++ at the time and the only IntelliSense that I would get was it would give me IntelliSense for words that I had already typed in that document. So like if I created a variable <laughs> yeah. and typed that word... I would then get IntelliSense for that later on or autocomplete, but I wouldn't have IntelliSense for the DOM APIs, for the backend Node.js libraries and APIs, for NPM packages. There was none of that, at least as far as I knew. So it was basically like the wild, wild west. And now we've gotten so much better. And a lot of that comes from, even if you're not writing TypeScript yourself, the things that you use on a daily basis are using TypeScript. And so you're getting that IntelliSense inside of your browser or inside of your editor. VS Code is probably the most popular and that's what i use like you get a ton of intellisense and vs code because the things that other people did they use typescript or they define typescript types for the things that they work with and then from a writing it yourself perspective i don't want to like underestimate the time it takes to adopt typescript for me it was easier because it was going back to things that i was used to in terms of c sharp and java from a strongly typed perspective yeah for other people that have only written JavaScript, that, that's a whole new world. And so I don't want to like undersell. Like it's it's a learning experience. It takes time to adopt. You get in situations where 
You're spending more time debugging a TypeScript warning or error that you just don't understand yet upfront because you haven't done it before. But the benefits of that, the IntelliSense, the error catching before you run code or the warnings in the editor before you actually run the code to say, hey, you can't pass that property here or you can't do that with this with this object because that function doesn't exist or whatever. Those things are super, super valuable. And for me at this point, anything that I do, unless it's unless I'm specifically trying to do it as quick as possible for a demo or it's a different audience, almost everything I do from a content perspective and things I would build my, myself are, are leveraging TypeScript. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I, I'm probably, whenever I'm in the JavaScript world, I'm in the TypeScript world too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you put that in front of a bootcamp audience or do you think that's too soon? I would. I think it's, again, it's all about priorities. I think TypeScript is definitely one of those topics that's in contention. Like it's it's a high enough priority to, to potentially be in a bootcamp. And then it's up to the bootcamp to kind of decide out of the things we could do that that are reasonable and would be valuable, which ones make the most sense. And so the bootcamp that I taught the second round, we actually used Angular. And Angular was one of, I think, the first, like actually the first framework to have TypeScript just kind of be the default. And Angular mm-hmm. is by um, Google and TypeScript by Microsoft. And so I, I was going to say that Microsoft like made it that way, but I don't know what made Google decide that it would be TypeScript by default. But anyway, it was TypeScript by default. And so they actually learned TypeScript or some of TypeScript by using Angular. But you think about like, what are all the different things that they could potentially learn? Do they go to backend? Do they learn about automated testing? Do they learn TypeScript? Do they learn about deeper UI things? Do they go deeper into source control? Do they go into data structures and algorithms? There's all these things. So I wouldn't definitively say TypeScript should be. It depends on the overall curriculum and the time and the strategy and that sort of stuff. But definitely one of those topics that I think is big enough to be in contention to be in bootcamp curriculum. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that whole course design is a whole other topic to get yes. onto. Yeah. But that's one of the things I find most fun about developer advocacy. So here's a thing I want to teach, but which parts do I teach and in yeah. what order? Yeah. But we'll Absolutely. have to leave that for another day because I yeah. know you have fathering duties to get back to. <laughs> so, James, yeah, maybe, thanks maybe for joining next time. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Catch you next time. Thank you, James. I'll put links to all those libraries in the show notes, and I'll also put links to James's Astro course if you're interested in taking that, and his YouTube channel if you want another place to subscribe to. You can check those all out from the show notes. We're going to be back, of course, next week with another developer lending their voice to the conversation. I'll tell you a little production fact about this podcast. Every week, I look through the list of recorded, unbroadcast episodes and try and decide what goes next naturally. And I'm thinking right now, we've got a really good one about building distributed systems and implementing your own distributed consensus algorithm for fun. I might go with that one just for the contrast, you know. This episode has been at one end of the rabbit hole. That one will be right at the other end. So maybe we'll do that. If you want to catch that episode, grab your pointers and jab at the subscribe button. If you've enjoyed this episode, then jab at the like button too, so we know. And if you know someone who's thinking about getting started in software, maybe jab the share button for this one and send it to them. And then go and have a lie down, because it's a lot of buttons and a lot of jabbing. Until next time, I've been your host, Chris Jenkins. This has been Developer Voices with James Q. Quick. Thanks for listening.